Hey, this is Dan Reeves. I'm the lead pastor of Journey Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Welcome to our podcast. Before we get going, we just want to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. We believe that you matter, not only to us, but to Jesus. Our hope is that you find something new and life-giving in Him today. Here's today's message. All right, so who wants to have an altar call after that baptism? Oh, man, I'll tell you what. Hey, uh, real briefly, uh, first of all, my name's Dan. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here. If you're new here, really glad that you're here. We'd love to get to know you a little bit better. Um, if you're traveling and just passing through, we would still love just to say hi and thanks for being here. Um, if you're looking for a place to settle in or you've got questions about faith, uh, that's what we're all about here. Whether you're uh, young like Elena or you've been uh, uh, traveling this earth for a bit, we would love to get to know you and help you draw closer to Christ, uh, which is our goal for all of us, um, is uh, to come to him as we are so that he can shape us. Uh, uh, if you are new, um, stop by the Welcome Center out there. Uh, they've got a team out there that uh, would love to get to know you, give you a free gift, all those kind of things. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention too is if you're looking for a place to plug in or you've been coming for a while, you'd like more information about uh, what it means to be a part of uh, this uh, local church. Uh, we're one of many churches uh, around the community and around the world. But if you want to know what it's like to plug in here, we're having a thing called Journey Basics uh, next week. And we would love for you to sign up, register for that. Uh, it's about an hour and a half. There's a meal, there's childcare, all that kind of stuff. It's with me uh, and our team uh, where I share our vision, our values, our beliefs. Um, and uh, if you'd like to do that, you can go ahead and register right now, journeyjonesworld.com uh, or stop by the Welcome Center. They can give you some more information about that. But it's next, uh, next week, I believe. Um, so with all that said, uh, I want to make this plea real quick after that baptism, and then we're going to get into our message today. Um, maybe something started in your heart uh, as you heard a testimony. Uh, one thing we do around here is when someone's baptized, uh, we walk with them in writing out their story because it's a personal thing. Um, uh, and, and we sit down with them over time. Uh, we have a few questions that we go through, and it just helps people to digest and process what's really happening uh, in their life as it pertains to faith. Uh, um, all of us, uh, when it comes to matters of faith, uh, we need community around us to do that. Uh, and maybe you've been going at it alone. Maybe you have questions about uh, Christ or maybe something that you heard in that testimony that was so well articulated uh, today from such a, a young voice. Maybe that stirred in your heart and you said, I want to follow in faith too. Uh, I want to put my faith and my trust in Jesus. Uh, uh, maybe God's prompting you to go public with your faith. That's something you've never done. Uh, maybe you're uh, in your 40s and you've never done that before or whatever. Uh, it's time for you to take that step too. And we are here to help you with that and to pray with you through that uh, in community. And so if you would, sometime as I'm talking today, uh, there's a connection card in the seat back in front of you. And it's as simple as pulling that thing out, jotting your name down, giving us a little bit of information so that uh, one of our team members can follow up with you. There's no pressure there. We're not going to come knock on your door tonight. We're not going to bombard you with emails and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we just want to make ourselves available to you so that we can process and pray with you about the step you need to take. Okay. Uh, so that's kind of way we do things around here. Um, and uh, we would love that opportunity to do that with you. Uh, now, here's what we're going to do for the next several minutes. Okay. We're in the middle of a series called Deep Truths. And uh, we're taking uh, seven weeks, basically. And uh, the idea behind this next set of these seven weeks, we started last week is to look at seven core Christian beliefs. Um, and, and the reason for that, uh, I think, is really timely because uh, there's so many different opinions, there's so many different interpretations floating around, uh, there's so many different iterations of, uh, of what Christian faith is, and depending on who you ask, uh, you may get different thoughts. And sometimes when we do that, when we ask questions, what we're really talking about is we're talking about give us something to hold on to, give us something uh, that's not fleeting, that's not here today, gone tomorrow. And in order to do that, we just believe that it's really helpful uh, and timely to go back farther than we normally go. There's something that C.S. Lewis used to call uh, uh, chronological snobbery. And what that is, is, is like, uh, as time goes on, we just assume that we get smarter and that culture gets smarter and that um, uh, humans get better as time goes on. Uh, and so we look back a little bit with disdain or suspicion to things of the past. Uh, but what we believe here
here are the things that make Christianity viable, important, uh, something worthy of building your life on, is that it's, it's not something that we came up with. Uh, it's not something that just arrived yesterday or in the last few decades. Uh, this is something that uh, was insta- instigated by God, and the classical Christian doctrines or the beliefs of our faith are, are things that, whether or not you, you may be in a Methodist church, uh, church right up here on the hill, our, our brothers and sisters up on the hill, or you reside here or another church across town that might have a little bit of a different denominational name uh, on the sign, there are some things that we can trace our faith back to that unites us, that makes us Christian. Uh, not just a flavor of the month, not just a brand, um, not a, a here today, gone tomorrow movement, but something that is timeless, something that is firm. And I think personally, this is my personal belief, is that right now we need some timeless things. We need to go back to some ancient things that unite us. And so what we've done is we've isolated seven. Today, we're going to talk about the deep truth of the Trinity, the Trinity. Now, um, there's going to be a lot that goes into here. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, we were having a discussion about this uh, uh, as a staff the other day, and we were going through some of these things, and uh, we, the topic of the Trinity came up, and uh, I think it was Kevin, uh, Pastor Kevin, he said, he said, well, there's a good chance if you talk more than 10 minutes, you're going to be heretical uh, when it comes to the Trinity. And that's true, because uh, what we're talking about here is a deep truth, and it is something that's unique and distinct to the Christian faith. And that's why I think it's important to ground all all that. And the way that we approach things like this, when we approach deep truths, when we approach things, there's a quote that I think is really helpful. Uh, it's, by, it's attributed to a lot of different people, but uh, probably most accurately is a guy named Rupertus Meldius. And this is what he said. Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense. It says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Now, we need some charity. Can I get an amen uh, in the world today? This world could use a little bit more charity. But in essentials, we have unity. There are some things, as I said before, that unite Christians of, of, of different nationalities and different backgrounds that bring us together. And so what are those essentials? What are some of the things that uh, draw us together? Now, when we talk about the Trinity, there's, there's a few things that uh, are really important, okay? So we're going to lay a groundwork. This is a probably going to be a little bit more academic than what we normally do uh, today. And some of you guys love that. And some of you guys are like, oh no, uh, man, I hope I can stay awake through this. And I totally get it. Okay. I'm going to do my best uh, to uh, kind of raffle through some things, but I think there's some important things that we have to do. And I also believe that the church could stand to be a little bit more academic. I think that we could stand to think a little bit more deeply about things uh, than just a, a common little tweetable phrase, but something that really stirs our minds. So when we talk about Trinity, all right, I want to give you kind of some working definitions, and I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, what this even is, because the whole vernacular of that, that word itself, may actually be like a word you've never heard before. It might be a word that uh, maybe you've heard, but you've never really thought about, or maybe you've thought deeply about it, and you're just really confused about it. Uh, and I would say, welcome to the club, okay? That's a pretty human response to this concept. So what is Trinity. What is it? All right, let's just give it kind of a definition first. If you think about Trinity, you break the word down, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's, uh, you can think about triune or you can think about triunity. That might help a little bit. Thinking about triunity, something that is unified, but it's also distinct. And so when we're talking about God, what we're talking about when it pertains to the Trinity is the idea that God is three mutually loving, eternally equal persons holding one will and one substance. I'll throw that definition up there for you. Three mutually loving, eternally equal persons holding one will and one substance. Now, when we talk about the persons, this is what we mean. The word Trinity is actually not a word that you're not going to pick up a verse in the Bible. Or you're not going to be able to go to the back of your Bible. Some of you have what's called a concordance back there, and it's got some key words that have some scripture references to you, and it's, got, it's a way to navigate the Bible if you're interested in a specific topic. Um, you're not going to go to the back of your Bible 
and see the word Trinity and find a list of verses on it. And the reason for that is that this, uh, Im- this implied or implicit idea of the Trinity is not something that is referred to specifically as a word. The word Trinity is a word that we use to describe something and to say something explicitly to something that we see implicitly and consistently in Scripture as it pertains to God. Now, you've probably, if you've read Scripture before or you've had any conversations about God, you've probably used one of three names to talk about God, or you've probably heard of these. Uh, These three mutually loving, eternally equal persons, holding one will, one substance. The first is the Father, the second is the Son, the third is the Holy Spirit. So if you read Scripture, you're going to see interchangeably at different times uh, God uh, referred to as a Father. You're going to see God referred to as the Son, and you're going to see the the God that is in Scripture referred to as the Holy Spirit. Now, this is perplexing, right? Uh, As a matter of fact, one of the great church fathers, Augustine, uh, this is the way he said it in in reference to that. If you're struggling to even get that, he said, anyone who denies the Trinity is in danger of losing their salvation, but anyone who tries to understand the Trinity is in danger of losing her mind. Anybody feel that way when you start getting in these conversations? Uh, About two months ago, I was in my office and uh, I was having a meeting uh, with one of our uh, elementary uh, kids and a parent. And uh, we were sitting there and, uh, you know, you get into a lot of interesting conversations with children when it comes to matters of faith because they don't know there's certain landmines you don't, you're not supposed to step on or, uh, you know, they're just really honest uh, and whatever they're really wrestling with comes out. And so we're sitting there and we're talking about baptism and we're talking about different things like that. And, and, and a lot of times those are pretty smooth. And, and then she asked me this question. She says, can you explain the Trinity to me? And I was like, yeah, it's like when your kids ask you the question, you know, like, why is the sky blue kind of thing? <laughs> like, oh, well, I, I think I can explain it. But I don't, how do I put this into words? How do I explain what is this deep, deep truth that has united Christians for centuries? And how do I make it uh, something that we can receive, digest, understand, and apply to our life? And in much the way, same way that happens uh, in an office with an elementary age child, I, I think the same challenge is true for us if you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, is there are some things as uh, Augustine said that are dangers uh, uh, of losing our mind. Now, I wanted to do this real quick, and I know this is taking a little bit of a time uh, as an intro, but I think it's important when we get into talking about things like the Trinity to understand maybe what Augustine was talking about when he, he mentioned some of these dangers. So here's some dangers and disclaimers that I, I want you to jot down. Uh, these are some things that limit our understanding of the Trinity. The first one is our fallen state. Okay, what I mean by that is that every single person in here in Scripture teaches this, and this is our mutually shared experience, is that we're all fallen. We're all sinful. Uh, we, uh, we all in our, of our own have gone away from God. That means that we have turned away from the mind of God, and we have turned and made ourselves God. Now, that presents a lot of problems that uh, forces us then to try to see through uh, a cloud to be able to understand something that we were created to know and experience as image bearers of God. But because we're all fallen in here, we're, uh, there, there's nobody that's uh, in, in a different spot of need before God. We're all coming to topics like this. And this requires humility for us to say is that we're all fallen. And we're doing our best to explain something huge and deep. Now, with that fallen state comes a few things. The other thing that comes from that is we have a limited perspective, all right? Um, The one thing that I I think that... I see happening in today's culture, and maybe this has been uh, expounded by or magnified by uh, our, our technology. There's this idea that now because you have access to all this different, different information, that your perspective is authoritative. Um, but I think if we can just all agree at the outside, outset is that your perspective is limited. You are confined by time, geography, your experience, there are things that have governed the way that you think about things. And oftentimes when we think about God, we're in danger 
of taking our, our, our individual perspective and imputing that back on God because it's our perspective. And oftentimes we treat our perspective as authoritative. But what we said last week was that none of our perspectives are authoritative. Scripture is authoritative. And so we come under Scripture and place ourselves in humility as people that say, God, we need your perspective on this. And then the other thing that happens when you talk about deep truths is we have limited language. Limited language. Have you ever tried to put some things into words? Like, let's just say you fell in love with someone, you know, uh, uh, and somebody said, well, t tell me like um, why you love this person. And you might be able to give, well, she's beautiful, she's smart, she's sweet, she's caring. Um, you may say, man, I just love the way that he thinks and he's so funny. You might think of some characteristics, but isn't it hard to wrap language around some things that are really true but when we try to put words to them, we fall short. Language falls short. And much is the same. Anytime we talk about God, anytime we talk about the Trinity, we have to acknowledge that our language is limited. Um, the other thing that we have to understand is sometimes when we, our language is li limited, we, we turn to analogies or illustrations or pictures. Um, if somebody says, hey, uh, you know, tell me about your vacation, you would, might show them some pictures. Well, let me show you what the beach looked like, right? But here's the thing we have to understand when we talk about the Trinity. Just as our language and our perspective is limited, our analogies and our pictures are. That's why some of you probably, when it talks about the Trinity, you may have somebody tried to describe it, say, well, it's kind of like an egg, you know? It's a, uh, you've got a shell, a yolk, and the white of the egg. You might talk about it like it's ice or something like that, where it's a, it exists in three different states, which that's a heresy. But anyway, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but we use these analogies and it's a way for us to try to grasp at some things and put words and pictures to things that are things that are eternal. And because of our limited perspective and our fallen state, we struggle to do this. And we have to be careful because oftentimes what we do is we try to read back in or impute things back into scripture and we make them equal with scripture rather than seeing what scripture actually explicitly states. And then the last thing uh, as a danger and a disclaimer, and then we'll, get to, we'll really hit the ground running, is that we have to acknowledge that we have a natural discomfort with mystery. Uh, we do. We don't like to not know things. Um, we want to know everything. We want to be able to explain things. Uh, we want to be authoritative on things. And, and, and oftentimes when it comes to things like uh, the Trinity and other things of faith, we try to be so... Uh, bottom shelf with it uh, in order to say, can I make it palatable or make it understandable, that sometimes we dismiss or derail the deep truth itself. And here's what I would say about the Trinity, because this is where we're going today, is there is a tendency for us to say, either do one of two things, either we turn it off and we say, ah, it's too hard to understand, or we try to reduce it down and make it so easy to understand because we say, well, it doesn't really matter. Hopefully what we'll see today is that it really does matter. And we wanna be the type of church, the type of people that we embrace deep things. We don't dismiss them. And we don't just exist up here on the shallow level. I think the world deserves that. And I certainly know that our Lord deserves that. He wants us to worship him with our mind. But what that means is, is that we're going to have to deal with some discomfort and we're going to have to deal, we're going to have to deal with some of our internal angst because oftentimes the things that are the most true about God are paradoxical. That means that they're apparent contradictions. Um, think about the fact that God is imminent and transcendent. The fact that he's sovereign and we have free will. These things are the things that are the most true about God, and the Trinity is likewise. And then one final quote I want to give you about the paradox, and this is G.K. Chesterton. This is what he said about it. Paradox is truth standing on its head to get attention. When we see paradox, we shouldn't dismiss it or run away and go like, oh, it's too hard for me. What we should do is we should look at the paradox and we can see why does that stir something in us? Where is that tension coming from?
okay? So with all that disclaimer, you're like, are you ever gonna get to scripture? Yes, we're about to, right? And the only place I could figure out how to start such a big topic was something that's the most familiar scripture with us and one of the most important uh, passages that the church has ever said from the most important person the world has ever seen. And it's in Matthew chapter 28. And this is Jesus himself introducing to us uh, the, the idea or the concept of the Trinity. And he, he basically just assumes it, okay? He's not teaching on it. He assumes it. And if you've ever been in a Baptist church, I know you've heard this before. Matthew 28, 17 through 20, it's familiar. When they saw him, they worshiped him. This is after he came back from the dead, the resurrection, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see, there's so many things in this passage and there's uh, thousands, if not millions of sermons that have been preached on this passage. But the only thing I wanna draw our attention to today is not the going and telling, not the baptizing, not the discipling. I want you to lean into the assumption that what Jesus is introducing to us is that there is a father, there is a son, and there is a Holy Spirit. Now, this is problematic. Now, in case you think that this is just problematic for us in our understanding, think about it for just a second to the group of people that were around and were the first hearers of this statement, okay? Don't think about when you first heard it, or maybe it's today, but think about what it would have been like in the first century to be a Jewish person that would have had a Jewish faith because all the disciples around him uh, originally, that first uh, wave of disciples all had a Jewish background or a Jew Jewish affiliation or understanding of God. And if you were a Jewish person and you had gone to the, the links of following Jesus who introduced himself as God, but you saw him die, now he's resurrected and now he's about to send you and he sends you in the power of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. What do you think that would challenge for you? Well, here's why I think it's a ch it would have been a challenge for them. And see if this helps you to maybe uh, uh, visualize it or feel it a little bit more. Here was the Jewish, primary Jewish understanding of God. And it comes from a, some, something that is called the Shema. Uh, it's something that we recite, a ver Jesus' version of the Shema, we recite at the end of every service here. Uh, but if you go all the way back to Deuteronomy, this is in Deuteronomy chapter six. I don't have the reference up there, but I think it's Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four. And, and this is God speaking to the Israelite people. And he introduces himself and this is his instruction. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now, what do you think the tension is? The thing about the Jewish faith that stood out from the very beginning is that it was a monotheistic faith. And what I mean by that is they, were, they believed in one God. Uh, and that's what the Shema was supposed to be recited every day. They, they would recite it. Uh, they would memorize this. Little boys and girls, that would be a rite of passage for them. They would memorize, recite this every day, their whole life. And it was drilled into their understanding as distinct to a Jewish concept of God, that God was one. God was not many. Now think about history for a second. Think about maybe uh, Roman history, Greek history, uh, you've got mythology and a lot of different things. Think about Egyptian history, uh, where a lot of this stuff would have been swirling around because this is where, uh, uh, you know, the faith in God of Christianity came out of this, this area geographically. And all around them, there were many gods. There was a God uh, of the sun. There was a God of the moon. There was a water God. There was a thunder God. There was all kinds of God. Any phenomenon uh, that would have been in society, they would have tried to cover their bases by worshiping all these different, different gods. And in a Jewish household, what they would do is they would have a God of the household. Uh, and it would generally be an altar in the middle household. It would have maybe been some kind of podium. This is a very crass explanation, but imagine if you had a table that was in the house and you would have, a, uh, you would have a, um, an idol on the table. Uh, and that would be like, when you, when you hear maybe in the Old Testament, some of you may be familiar with this, it says like, uh, he and his household. 
uh, came to faith? Well, we're like, well, why did that happen? Is because whoever the patriarch of the house was, everybody in the house worshiped that God. And every house in a Roman household would have that. And so into the middle of all this stuff, you've got Jewish thought, you've got Egyptian thought, you've got Greek thought, you've got Roman thought, and you've got all these gods. And then you have the God of the Jews. And he was one God. And that's why also one of the Ten Commandments was don't create another image of me because there is one God, only one God to worship. And so if you're a disciple and you're in Matthew 28 for us, uh, they didn't have references and all that kind of stuff. This was written much later and jotted down for us. But when you were in that circle and you heard the resurrected Jesus say that, you would have had some internal cultural mindset things that would have to be sorted out. And this caused a lot of problems. Um, this caused a lot of problems in the early church over the first three to four centuries of the church uh, because uh, they didn't have a, a canonized version of the New Testament just to go to all that. They had the Old Testament, they had some writings, and then as time evolved, those writings were collected together and, be, and then canonized or wrapped together and said, okay, these are the authoritative teachings. This is an inspired, infallible word of God. But as that process is playing out, heresies would begin to evolve and, and kind of start to go out there. And you can think about what some of those tensions would have led to. One of the common heresies was something called Arianism. Okay, Arianism. What's Arianism? Uh, Arianism is the view that the sun was created and therefore is not God. Um, and you can see this, we sang this song at the beginning today is that he is the, the only begotten son of God. People would have taken that language and they would have said, well, okay, well, um, God the Father created the son. And so what does that mean? Well, that obviously means that he can't be God because he was created because God is an uncreated being that he exists uh, eternally, right? And so this was starting to swirl. Uh, this thought was starting to swirl because they were trying to come to terms with this tension. Like, what do you do with this? One God, right? And then you've got three at the same time. And so this starts to emerge and stemming out of that were some of those some other heresies. One of the heresies that kind of stemmed out of that was uh, something that we would call today modalism. Uh, this is a loose term to kind of blanket a bunch of them together. This is the view that God is one but is manifested in three modes or three manifestations in history. That's that whole ice imagery I was telling you earlier that he father, we, we see the father, he manifests himself as the father, he manifests himself as the son, he manifests himself as the spirit. It. But when he's one, he's not the other. He's kind of like a shapeshifter, all right? And so our experience of him really dictates our understanding of him in that way. And in different seasons and different times in history, he kind of presents himself in different ways. And that's the way some people have tried to reconcile that tension. But also one of those tensions leads to has led to another common heresy, which is subordinationism. This has a lot of different flavors to it. And this is the view that the Son and the Spirit are eternally subordinate to the Father. This is to say that, okay, really, the Father's God. The Son's not really God. He's an essence God, but he really is just subservient to or he's subordinate to the Father. And likewise, the Spirit is subordinate to the Father as well. And perhaps he might be subordinate to the Son because Jesus sends the Spirit. And so people were trying to come up with all these different ways to try to understand this paradox. And coming out of that were a bunch of heresies. Now, what happened in the church, okay, this is a little history lesson. What happened in the church is the church was starting to see these heresies. Uh, and it's been commonly said in history that heresies uh, are the birthplace of orthodoxy. What that means is a lot of things that we have written down uh, about um, what scripture says are reactions to things that were heresies, things that were not true about God. And so the apostles and early church fathers got together and they were like, man, there's, this is swirling around and it's starting to catch uh, a lot of traction out there. And so what happened within the first three centuries of the church, okay? It, 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 there were two important events in the early church. Uh, one was called the Council of Nicaea. It, helped, it happened at Nicaea. And the the other, we can throw those up there. That was in 325. 
AD, uh, yeah, and then the other one was the, the Council of Constantinople, and it was in 381, okay? Uh, anybody remember the They Might Be Giant song, Istanbul is Constantinople, it's Istanbul, never mind, that's a whole different thing. This is how my mind works, okay? I'm thinking about 20 things when I'm up here. I, every time I see Constantinople, I cannot get that song out of my head, okay? Sorry, never mind. You can look it up on YouTube later. All right. They might be giants. Istanbul, it's not Constantinople. No, it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. Okay, never mind. Okay. I want to sing the rest of the song to you really bad now at this point. <laughs> but I'm not going to do it. But coming out of that, coming out of this, once um, they got together, this is the first ecumenical and the second ecumenical councils of the church. What this means is all these different churches got together and they said, hey, we've got to put down in writing what we believe is true because there's a lot of falsehood, and a lot of heresy floating around out there. I mean, there's people that are saying that Jesus is not the son. There's people that are saying when he's the son, he's not the father. And when he's the spirit, he's not the son. And there's people that are saying, well, really, the father's God and the other two are just kind of there to carry out his work. And so we've got to put some things down in writing. And so birthed out of that was something called the Nicene Creed. Can we read a creed in our church real quick? Right? Can I do this for us? We're just going to read through it real quick. This is what they came up with. And see how it begins to address some of these things. Let me just read it for you. This is the creed, and they would recite this. They would say, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Let's keep on rolling through this. I'm not going to comment. I'm going to try to read it. Born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him, all things were made. Keep on going. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. And I think the final one's here. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So you can discern for yourself just from reading that what their take on those heresies and others like them were. And there's no way for me to, to kind of go through all of them, but you can see the mindset, right? This is what they're trying to kind of put boundaries around. They're trying to put at the middle of this, like this is what defines what it means to be Christian. When we think of God, what do we think of? When we think of Jesus, what do we think of? And when we think of the spirit, what do we think of? How do we define those things? So going back to our definition, um, there were some characteristics. So what were those characteristics? One is that this God is co-eternal. He's a communion of eternally coexistent persons, okay? Persons have uniqueness, uh, but they are not disconnected from community. Now here's a little thing to tackle, okay? Because we're all Westerners in here. As we think about uh, things very individualistically, don't we? Uh, we think that the highest form of uh, truth is personal liberty, um, our individuality, our identity, our individual feelings, our individual thoughts. That, that, that's kind of what makes us uh, uh, Americans to some part. And it's not all bad, but it's just incomplete. Now, you may not go to another part of the world, and some of you have probably been to some of these parts of the world, where their primary lens for understanding identity, feelings, and thoughts is not the individual, but is the community. It's the community. And now for us, that might be a little bit like weird. You're like, well, that's not the way it's supposed to be, but just kind of don't be a snob for a second and just think, well, many societies in history and today, that's their understanding. And why do they have that understanding? It's because 
when we think about who we are as people, we have to understand that while we're individual humans, that we are all part of humanity. That's what it means to be human. And we're all interrelated. We're all interdependent. We're all interconnected. There is a connectedness to what it means to be um, part of humankind. It's who we are. And when we think about God, it's important for us to understand that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all co-eternal. They are a community or a communion of eternally coexistent persons. Um, and, And there's a lot of places that we see this. The first place you see it, guess where you first see it? The first page of the Bible. Genesis chapter one, verses one through four. This is what it says. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, well, that's easy. God did that. Well, who's God? Well, let's read on. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Who's the first member of the Trinity to be introduced to us? Class, the spirit. Now, if you grew up in a Baptist church, this is problematic because a lot of times we treat the Trinity like the Father, Son, and the Holy Scripture. And we got a crazy uncle named the Holy Spirit that we welcome in every occasion. And then we kind of get uncomfortable and we're like, ah, okay, let's get back to what we can understand and what we can deal with, right? But the first member of the Trinity to be introduced to us means that the Spirit is not a deficient subordinate member of the Trinity, that the Spirit was the first one introduced. And I think the primacy of that is that he was integral into the creation. Now I say he, but the image that's given uh, in this passage is a a picture of uh, of a mother bird that is setting over her nest. If you get into the Hebrew terminology for this, the word is ruach, which means breath and energy. But the idea is that the Spirit of God was looking over the formless uh, void, uh, the chaos, and he was like a mother bird carrying and he lays an egg if you want to say it that way or she lays an egg because he laying an egg would be kind of weird but what God does is God creates and what's the primary agent of creation well it's the Holy Spirit but the Holy Spirit is not alone the Holy Spirit also has two other members Uh, alongside of him was hovering, go back real quick, was hovering, there we go, uh, was hovering over the waters and God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. Now, as the spirit of God is hovering over the waters, then we have God speaking. Now, if we had time, we would go to the New Testament. John chapter one says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then in verse 14, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so what we know from this is that the son was pre-existent to creation. So he's not a created being that the son and the father, because he's called the son, the father and the son and the spirit are all present and operable in creation. They're all working in one united pre-existent community. They're existing together and they're operating in one will and they're operating in one action together. Now, this is not just an Old Testament phenomenon. Uh, If you were to go to Matthew chapter three, you see the three together in one moment again, in Matthew three, verses 16 and 17, it says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, uh, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened up and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all together, all operating together within history, but all are outside of history at the same time. They're pre-existent. They're a community of pre-existent, eternally functioned God that is working within creation. And so they all created us and they all created the world. Now, here's the thing that's important about that. When you really think about it, that also means that they're not just coexistent or pre-existent, they're also co-eternal and co-equal, okay? They're co-equal. Now, what does it mean to be co-equal? It's a communion of equal worth, work, and will, okay? So that means that there's not a deficient member within the Trinity, 
they are all uh, of equal worth, they all are of equal work, and they're all of equal will. Now, when you get to the New Testament, one of the best places to kind of hang out, and uh, it's, it, I mean, this would be like, I don't know, a week-long seminar. There have been books and books and books written on these kind of things. Um, but in John chapter 5, for a summary, John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, uh, watch what Jesus says uh, about his relationship first to his Father and then his relationship to the Spirit, their relationship to the Spirit. So, in verse 16, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day and I too am working. Now that doesn't sound too offensive, really, maybe to our, our, our modern mindset, but it was very offensive to them. And the question is why? Why was it a very offensive to all the other Jewish leaders? Well, let's learn together exactly why it's told to us. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, which was one thing, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So you see, something that we, we typically don't understand, and there's a lot of cults that have kind of popped up that have tried to deal with this and diminish Jesus' role, made him a prophet, different things like that. But when we look at Jesus, um, Jesus himself presented himself as equal with the father and all of his contemporaries understood that's what he was saying. Um, that's what got him killed. Uh, ultimately, healing on the Sabbath did not get him killed. Being nice to people is not what got him killed. What got him killed was the claim that he was God. He was equal to God. And so if we're going to deal with Jesus, we've got to deal with him on the terms that he presented himself. And he presented himself to be God. And we have to make the, uh, we have to make the decision as individual humans and as churches, well, do we agree with Jesus or do we not? Is he God or is he not? Everybody around him knew that's what he was saying and that's exactly what got him on the cross. He says, very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. There is a un unity, an equal will, an equal action, an equal work. That, mean, that means that when Jesus is acting, you can assume that, and this is what he continues to say, when you see me working, I can only do what my father says. And my father is always doing the same thing I'm doing. And so there is a unity of wills that are being carried out together. It, it, it's like uh, the only thing I can think of, and this is a very, uh, and I said I wasn't gonna use a lot of illustrations because they're all heretical. So maybe this is, but it's kind of like some of you have been married uh, a long time. And uh, uh, we had this, uh, this thing this week and uh, we were having this meeting and uh, uh, we were ordering in lunch and I knew what Veronica wanted from this restaurant. Uh, I didn't call her and ask, I because it's what she always orders and she knows what I order. You know, we've been together for 26 years. We know what the other person's gonna think about certain things, not always, but in certain ways, we know what the other person thinks and what they want. And so I ordered for her. And why did I do that? It's because I know her. We work in tandem and, and I would only do that because I would assume this is what she wants. And this is the way that the father and son operate. There is to an infinite amount of agreement and uh, congruence on their will. They operate together in that. And so he can't do anything. Jesus said, I can't do anything unless my father's doing it. Um, my father doesn't do anything that I'm not doing. We're doing the same thing. And so that's his relationship to the Father. But, but what about the Spirit? Okay, what about the Spirit? Well, the Spirit comes into play many times. One of the times Jesus talks about it in the same gospel is in John 14, 16. And this is what he says before he goes to the cross. He says, I will ask the Father and he'll give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it is neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. So the spirit of truth, Jesus says, this is my relationship to the Father. This is my relationship to the spirit. And so now we have God present with man and women working together, working in unity the way it was in Genesis chapter one, and they are operating with one will all together. And so Jesus sends the spirit along with the Father to us to be a presence with us. So this is what we get. We get a co-eternal 
we get a co-equal God that is also, and this is the last thing we're gonna talk about today, is also existing in a mutually loving community. As a matter of fact, if you wanna write it down, he is a communion of mutually interdependent, uh, communion of mutuality, interdependence, and reciprocity. Now that's a kind of a big, those are some big words, but basically what it means is that there's mutuality, uh, they have mutual sharing, there is an e- equality to that, there's an interdependence, they need each other, okay? We don't think of God needing outside, anything outside of himself, but he needs everything that he is. And there's reciprocity. That means that they are working in tandem in a mutually loving community. Now, there's been a lot of people that have tried to impress a whole lot of things on that and try to understand all the the depths of what that means. There's some danger in that because there's a lot of things scripture doesn't tell us and we can't assume a lot, but what we can do is we can say, what does scripture say? The scriptures are authority. And in 1 John chapter four, verse eight, all right? Same writer that wrote the other stuff we just read writes this letter. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, if this is indeed John the apostle that's writing this, the disciple who refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved, he lived longer than any other disciple. He had seen all the church go through all kinds of turmoil. He's writing to a church that's struggling right now. And if there's ever a time to reduce everything down to its, its rarest base form, John, with all of his wisdom through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and all of his experience tells us his understanding of who God is. And his understanding of who God is, is that God is love. Not God does love, but if you wonder who God is, God is love. So think about love for a second. How do you love apart from relationship? The only way we know what love is, is through relationship. As a matter of fact, John would have gone on to say after this, he would say that, matter of fact, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, that we wouldn't even know what love is apart from God revealing it to us, right? So when we think about the Trinity, who did God love before he created us? Love existed in who he was because they were mutually dependent, reciprocating love. They existed in perfect, untainted love. That's the way that they existed. Every time that heater kicks on over on there, um, it freaks me out. I think somebody's behind me. Okay. Um, So what does that mean for us? Well, three quick things and then I'm gonna read scripture and we'll be done. All right. Here's what that presents to us. It becomes then... When we think about the Trinity, this is why it's important. Our, it becomes our framework for understanding creation. That means that we cannot understand creation itself apart from the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit because they were all operable within creation. It also becomes our framework for understanding salvation. That means that we can't truly have a biblical salvation without understanding the role of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all working with one united will to restore humanity to themselves. And then finally, it becomes our framework for understanding relationships. This is my last point, okay? When we think about who we are, one thing that we have to have agreement on is that we were made in the image of God. That's what Genesis chapter one, verse 26 says. Uh, Throw it up here really quick and you can jot it down. I know this is a ton of scripture. But you see this happen in the first chapter. God says, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So you have plural pronouns referred to God himself. And what does he say? He says, they. At this point, the they was humankind. It was Adam and Eve. That they together in reciprocity and mutuality would then image what this God is like. That they would, they would begin to reveal what this God is like within creation together. And so when we think about relationships, it becomes a framework for us and how we decide about the Trinity dictates our framework for understanding creation, salvation, and all of our interpersonal relationships. And so 
this is what the New Testament writers, the apostles picked up on. And I wanna give this encouragement to you at the very end because a lot of people have tried to figure this out and they've come up with all these things to try to figure out, well, how does all this work? Well, again, let's just see what scripture says explicitly. And I wanna see how this actually, as the final point, brings us together as a community that images God well. This was Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. And I think it's our prayer today. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He goes on to pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and how high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You see what Paul's praying for this group of churches across Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. He's praying that they through the Father, the Son and the Spirit would know what love is. They would experience the power that comes the creative, salvific, relational power that comes from the interdependence, the mutuality of the Godhead. And in knowing him, then they would actually begin to live out in freedom what it means to be truly human. What does it truly mean to image God? Now that's a pretty deep uh, truth. It's a pretty tall order. And so what do we do with that? Well, rather than coming up with a whole bunch of intricate ways of looking at it, fortunately for us, the Spirit inspired, inspired the writers of the New Testament to tell us how are we to approach this. And Paul records for us this final instruction. And this is the instruction, that's the encouragement. Here's the instruction. Here's the instruction for every person that draws breath in this room, including myself. And it's what Paul said to the church at Philippi. And it, it has everything to do with how we model the Godhead in our relationship. What do we do? Who's the father? Who's the son? Who's the spirit? Well, we're told to only really reflect and act like one. Which one is that? Well, Philippians chapter two, five through 11 tells us, and your relationships, you and me, with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So when we look at the Trinity, if it gets confusing, what are we supposed to do? Not come up with a whole bunch of other stuff to try to figure out, but say who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that you love us. We thank you that you are love. And there's so many things that get confusing. We get bogged down. Uh, it's so easy for us to get confused. We're so limited. We thank you that you revealed yourself in creation through your son and through your word so that we could know you better. Our prayer is that we would image you well, that we would walk uh, along a well-worn path of those of an ancient faith that have walked before us so that we can walk into the future with confidence and humility. Our prayer today, God, is as your people that we would truly lean into your spirit, that we would be guided by your spirit, that we would trust your son, we would follow him and that we would love you as adopted sons and daughters of Yahweh, the King. And so we come before you today and we state together with clarity, this is our faith, this is who we are. 
Lord, continue to shape us and guide us by these deep truths. Help us, God, as we minister to the world that you died to save. In Jesus' name, amen.